You're listening to the Lessons in Real Estate Show, sponsored by Mission First Capital, bringing real estate investment deals for active duty and veteran investors. Your host, Anthony Pinto, searched land, air, and sea to find military investors just like you investing in multifamily and commercial real estate, both active duty and veterans. Hear their stories, learn their lessons, and be inspired by the obstacles they have overcome on their path to financial freedom. Whether you are overseas or stationed at home, if you want to get started as a military real estate investor, this is the show for you. And now your host, Anthony Pinto. I'm so excited to have you guys here today on the revamped new and improved version of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I wanted to refocus on my mission here in life uh, with this podcast, and that is to help teach and inspire 1 million military members and veterans to achieve financial freedom through real estate. And as a part of the March to a Million campaign, my call is to show you the path to freedom of time and money, whether you intend to stay in for 20 years or get out next year. And so listen to the stories of fellow military members and investors just like you struggling, overcoming and achieving success in multifamily real estate and even some of them doing it while active duty and really dig into their lessons learned as well as their failures on their path to success. Uh, But you came here for the show, so let's get to it. Hey learners and welcome to another edition of the Lessons in Real Estate show. I'm your host, Anthony Pinto, and today we have a very special guest, probably one of the most experienced operators I've ever had on the show. His name is Neil Walgren. He is the Chief Operating Officer for MAG Capital Partners out of San Francisco. He's raised over $150 million in equity for his real estate business. And before that, he was a C-130 pilot, both for the Navy and the Air Force. Super excited to have you on today. Neil, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Anthony. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I think you have a really interesting military background. It's not not too often that you... Uh, you know, have an Air Force Academy grad that, you know, flies for the Air Force for a while and then switches over to Navy. So I'm interested to kind of hear more about your military background and, and how that led you into uh, real estate and what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, you know, so I'm a California native, grew up outside of San Francisco, kind of in the suburbs there. It was, you know, just suburbia, kind of boring, to be honest. And, you know, like, a lot of people in their teens was looking for something more exciting. Uh, the whole flying side of things appealed to me. I had actually uh, started working toward my private license um, when I was, I guess, 15, 16 years old. Liked the flying aspect, so went through the four years at the Air Force Academy. So I did that, um, graduated well enough to get a pilot slot, and ultimately ended up going to fly the C-130, the Hercules. So kind of a, a mid-sized cargo plane, uh, four turboprops on it. They do a lot of you know dirt field landing, airdrops, uh, really just a, a tactical workhorse plane that you can use for a ton of different things. But on the way through, I had done half of my flight school in Corpus Christi. It was kind of by chance. Normally, the Air Force sends you to Air Force flight training schools, but they were kind of full, I think, right? I, don't, I honestly don't remember the exact details, but they said, hey, we're going to send you to the Navy just for the second half here where you're going to learn, you know, this particular multi-engine training. So I got to do that and really enjoyed it. You know, the Navy takes this much more hands-off view of flying, kind of like, hey, just get your job done. If you don't, we're going to be very upset, but like, you know, how you do it, we don't really care, you know, just as long as you kind of, you know, 
adhere to the regulations and the rest is kind of up to you. Uh, and I really like that aspect. In comparison, the Air Force takes a much more, you know, micromanager approach. They want to know every little thing that's going on with flying. And, you know, you as, as an aircraft commander have a lot less autonomy in the Air Force environment than you do in the Navy side. So, um, you know, fast forward, did a, a four years in Japan. So uh, really enjoyed hearing about your uh, time there in Tokyo, living out there. I, I loved it. Personally, I was there from 07 to 2011 and did a couple of years in Little Rock and then ultimately had a chance to get out and I joined the Navy Reserve. So uh, the Navy also flies C-130s. Um, they just so happen to do so on the beach. So <laughs> uh, so joined uh, Point Magoo down by Malibu in Southern California, flew part-time out there until I finally uh, kind of wrapped up my military experience. Awesome. I, uh, that's really interesting that you've, um, you have that yeah, unique experience both dealing with Air Force flying and, and Navy, Navy flying. Um, what, um, I guess my question is, is in terms of, of how like pilots operate and, and how many there are, you know, I, I think a lot of people assume that the Air Force is literally just all pilots. That's so like everyone who, <laughs> who's an officer is a pilot. And, and, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. Is are there a, a lot of pilots in the Air Force compared with the Navy? Like, is there? Were you? So kind of I, I don't know the Navy numbers, but in the Air Force, only about three percent of the entire Air Force are pilots. So it's it's wow. a relatively small amount, and I think only a total of about six percent are air crew. So the rest are, you know, navigators, weapons officers, and then you have enlisted air crew as well. Um, you know, load masters on the C-130, flight engineers, basically people required to, you know, keep this fairly complex airframe, you know, flying and, and doing what the mission is. But really, I mean, there's just scores of people on the ground between maintenance and operations and, you know, all the logistical chains required, probably very similar to the submarine world of, you know, making sure you got parts where you need them. And, you know, these planes, they're old, right? I mean, I was flying, God, I, I was in Iraq flying uh, a 1959 model, I remember, you know, and that, that was, I mean, it's an old plane. They had pencil sharpener, you know, manual pencil sharpeners up front They had ashtrays by the pilot seats, you know, <laughs> you know, back in the days when you could sit there and smoke and right. I mean, they're just, they're, they're workhorses, but, you know, keeping them, keeping them up in the air is, is certainly uh, not an easy task. So um, yeah, that's the majority of the air force and probably the similar field in fixed wing for the Navy is, is in a supporting role there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's what I figured. It was probably a relatively small, a small amount of people actually flying in the air force. So, okay. Awesome. So, so you uh, went from, you know, kind of doing most of your career in the air force finally ended in, in Navy reserve. So how did that kind of transition you into, into real estate or were you always involved with real estate while you're in? I, I was kind of a late arrival. So early on in the reserve time, you know, I, I was kind of looking out, I, I had taken a job, as my, you know, quote unquote, real job uh, supplemented by part-time flying um, with a startup. And it was fun. You know, it was my first time kind of out of the big, big military infrastructure world and, you know, really got to see a lot of the autonomy that comes with working for a startup. You know, you're allowed to take chances, you're allowed to take risks. And, you know, there's a lot of high risk, high reward structure in a startup, both in the day-to-day -day and in, you know, really your you're putting your time and hoping that the company's successful. Uh, this particular one was not, they, they ran out of funding 
which is statistically the most likely thing that happens, but it was a cool experience. And, you know, during that process, I happened to read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, a lot of real estate folks have read that, highly recommend it if you haven't. And, you know, most of my peers at the time were looking at getting out of the reserves, going into the airlines because they were starting to hire pretty heavily. This is about 10 years ago. And I kind of looked at it and I said, well, you know, the flying's maybe not as fun as it was in the military. And really, you know, as a commercial pilot, you know, it's a decent job, but you are, you are constantly tying your hours with your money, right? And there's no way to scale that. You can't make more money really unless you have just a ton of years in, but ultimately how much money you make, you're just an hourly employee and you're only getting paid when those engines are running on the airplane. And there's no way to truly be able to leverage your time in a way that you have money or, you know, you have your, your efforts making you money in a sense that you are not sitting in a cockpit at the same time. So that was, I would say the drive for me to start looking outside of aviation for kind of the next chapter there. And, you know, how did I get to real estate actually ended up just being at a birthday party, ran into kind of a family friend who had started this business. And I knew he was in real estate, but really didn't know much of the details around it. And we started talking and he was getting a little older. He's in his seventies and was looking for someone to kind of take over the operations and his business. He had created this really like an investor equity raising machine. So he would partner with a operational expert, typically a, a developer or a commercial real estate broker who, you know, had a good eye for picking, you know, good projects, putting together a business plan, getting debt, but really struggled to raise the equity required, you know, the cash investment required to close on the deals. So what he would do is he would partner with these developers on a project by project basis. And um, this company um, that my family friend had ultimately, you know, had probably a couple thousand investors and would raise money for different syndicators, more or less. So it was neat. We were investor focused and we had the chance to partner with really a lot of different operators. I think there was probably six or eight different operators we would do repeat deals with, but got to see a lot of different asset classes, everything from retail to multifamily, you know, ground up construction, even student housing, uh, senior assisted living. Uh, we didn't do any self-storage, but uh, the last one we did was industrial. And the industrial was with the company, Mag Capital Partners, who I've been with for about three years now. Wow. That's, I mean, that's uh, amazing, which you, what sounds like he was able to do there, you know, over, over a few different years. Um, and that's that's a really smart way to, to go about it. Um, you know, if if you're really good at raising capital, just raising capital and having, you know, enough um, business acumen to be able to judge the deal. And, and really, you know, it's ultimately judging the people that you're working with is, is really where it comes down to, at least what I found uh, when, when you're doing syndications. And it sounds like it was a very similar kind of format for you guys. Um, 100%. You know, and that's something that I think is, um, is <laughs> like you said, it's probably one of the hardest parts in, in this real estate business um, outside of, you know, obviously having your own money to invest, but trying to raise capital from, from other people, especially when you're, when you're getting started is, uh, it, it can be a little overwhelming. It can be a lot. So <laughs> I think that's amazing that he was able to, to build up that business. Um, but I, I, you know, I wanted to kind of dig into the air force, uh, or the, um, flying side of things after you're getting out. Cause I, um, uh, I originally went to, to the Academy to, with the idea to fly and, um, okay. 
you know, I did an internship for a summer at Pax River in Maryland. And um, I get to fly a whole bunch of different stuff, including the C-130. Uh, <laughs> I remember um, getting lunch right beforehand and eating uh, chicken nuggets in the, in the back Ooh. of the C-130. Flying around. Bad idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, it did, didn't work out too well, but it was, it was a really cool experience <laughs> overall. And, um, you know, I had a really similar uh, thought process when I was looking at what was life going to be like after, you know, flying for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the Navy. Um, and it was pretty much the exact same thought you had, like, you know, you could either stay and do maintenance, right, as like a contractor and pretty much do the same job, or you could go kind of be a commercial pilot um, and really kind of do the same thing. And and mm-hmm. the, the idea of what skills are transferable over as a pilot versus like, um, you know, a submariner or a surface, you know, surface warfare officer just seemed very, very limited in scope, um, like a very specific skill set is what you kind of took out of, of the Navy. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's one of the decisions why it led me to go subs rather than, than fly. Um, And, and for all intents and purposes, it's essentially the same, the same prospects. I'm just flying under the water instead of flying. (laughs) Uh, Sure. But I thought that's interesting that you had that same kind of thought process uh, when you're getting out of, you know, kind of what's next, what's the next. Oh yeah. I, you know, kind of a funny story. I remember when I was weighing that option and, you know, I was talking to a few people who had done it and there was a a couple of reservists who were still flying kind of part-time, but spending most of the time with their new airline job. And we were talking to a buddy of mine and he, I said, what's it like? And he's like, well, and he had just finished kind of all the quals. And I think he'd been doing it for about a year. And he said, well, he's like the other day it dawned on me. He's like, "I, I sat down in the plane and you know, he's a Southwest pilot and he's like, you know, flying, I think Burbank to Omaha. And he's like, I look over the guy next to me and he's, you know, standard near retirement guy, 60 years old, all white hair. And he's like, I realize that's going to be me in 30 years doing the exact same thing that I'm doing now. (laughs) And he's like, honestly, it kind of gives me anxiety. And he was telling me he was starting to look at some side hustles and possibly, you know, ways to kind of diversify out of just pouring your heart and soul into one thing that you're just going to repeat over and over and over. And, you know, and him and I both had similar mindsets in that, you know, we, we like the challenge. We like, you know, upside, we like building things and growing things. And, you know, this idea that you're sort of just a a cog in the system for the next three decades was a little depressing. (laughs) So that was, you know, it really reinforced my decision that, this is this is certainly the better track for me in, in terms of getting out of aviation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, that's probably the main point of why a lot of people get into real estate in the first place, particularly out of the military, is the is the ability to control your own time and control your own money and kind of write your own future rather than, you know, yeah. be tied to, hey, I have to do 20 years and I don't really have a choice in where I'm getting stationed or how you know much I'm flying or if I'm getting deployed or not. Um, and it sounds like it's very, it's very similar. You're essentially trading that one W2 for another W2. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. that's a, a really astute observation that you had there um, with wanting to kind of branch out and, and make your own way uh, with, with this business. So, um, so, so let's get into that. You know, it's multifamily is mainly what we, what we talk about here and focus on the show, but I mean, you've kind of done every other type of commercial real <laughs> estate as it is, you know, industrial, uh, retail, so on and so forth. And, you know, I think a lot of people don't fully understand what those industries specifically are, like how to get into it. Cause 
you know, you can take an apartment building, you can look at, okay, this is the rents coming in. These are the expenses, you know, roughly. And you can kind of get an idea of how much something is worth. But like when you're looking at retail and like what future business could be like, or you're looking at like industrial and, and kind of trends and like how you evaluate, you know, those type of opportunities. I'm really interested to kind of, to kind of dig into that. So, you know, obviously your, your background wasn't in those when you first came on and you guys are mainly sticking with, with, um, you know, raising capital. So how do you go about actually evaluating those deals since they're obviously varied in location, markets, uh, the type of, of asset you're investing in? How do you go about evaluating those in, in, your, in your operators when you guys are looking at place capital? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So to piggyback a little bit on what you said earlier, you know, you talked about the people being so important. We would, you know, I think an a investor should take that approach when choosing, you know, a sponsor team who runs passive investments. They should, uh, an investor should take that approach when evaluating what group they want to place capital with. And in the same way, you know, sponsors should take the same approach when deciding who they want to partner with. And, you know, really there's a lot to be gained if you partner with the right person, there's experience, there's, you know, leverage, you're, you're building theoretically a, a much faster track record. If you're kind of partnering or piggybacking on someone who's done this before and you can, you know, kind of claim their track record as your track record now. And, and now you've, you've built something more substantiated that you can use as kind of the reason why someone should invest with you in the future. And, you know, when you, when you look at these teams really, you know, and this I'll talk about even before we get into the specifics of real estate. I mean, I, I think, absolutely the number one should be communication and, you know, ask when you're evaluating either partner or a group to invest with, you know, first of all, find, find some people in the space. If you don't know anyone in the space, go to go on a meetup group, you know, do some Google searches, ask some people around and say, Hey, do you know a sponsor who's in, I don't know, self-storage or industrial or, you know, senior assisted living. If people don't know, they typically know someone who is, you know, either more experienced or well-connected and getting a referral to start off with, I think, is, is a massive way to eliminate risk of just going in blind, you know, doing a Google search, trying to find someone. And instead, at least you're, you're getting a one or two data points of, hey, these guys do what they say they're going to. And then once you get a, a conversation going, you know, I, I always recommend have a simple ask. Say, hey, can you follow up with, you know, send me your investor deck or, or, you know, send me this, whatever it is that you decide on with your conversation and make it, make it easy, right? Make it something that takes a minute of their time, but see if they follow up and see if they do it on a timely manner. And, you know, that, that initial first test is probably fairly indicative on how they run their, you know, kind of day-to-day organization and, and work-life accountability. And I think that is a great way to kind of do an early trust test, with a, a group to decide whether you want to move forward and actually have an investment with them. And then as you scale up, take a small amount, you know, usually minimums are great, you know, find out what their minimums are. If it's a little too high, ask them if they're willing to potentially take a little less for the first investment and, and go in with the idea that you'd rather do multiple deals with one sponsor. Who's great than spread your money across five or six different sponsors, trying to pick the best deals. Because it doesn't matter how good something looks on paper, if you don't have the right team behind it, there's a very low likelihood that project will ever hit fruition to you know meet those those projections. Mm-hmm. 
I think you hit the nail on the head there with with evaluating partners um, and and that communication part and then the testing part, right? Um, I think a lot of people can talk a good talk, but when you actually get mm-hmm. down to you know actually giving them tasks and actually seeing what what they're producing, a lot of people don't end up you know sticking up to to their word and and um, what they were promising to bring. But I also think it, it's a, a good point you brought up about um, that uh, having a few partners that you want to deal with because I think. Ultimately, that's much more important than the actual deal itself, right? I mean, Atlanta, you can invest in Atlanta and Dallas and hit big, big deals, but, um, you know, get them for a great price and and all that. But if the operators have no clue what they're doing, right, if they've never done this before, or they don't, you know, buy it at the right price, or, you know, a multitude of different things that could go wrong, specifically tied to an operator, right, that project could just, you know, nosedive right off the bat before you even get off the, uh, you know, get off the ground. So I think that's I think that's vitally important, and a lot of people don't necessarily think about is they're always thinking about the, about the deal and like, hey, I, I need to get mm-hmm. a deal, and then you know we'll kind of build out the team from there rather than building out your team first and making sure you have the right people on board before yeah. you start before you start looking at deals. So I think it's 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 so vitally important because um, it can you know it's um, having the right people can totally make or break what you're what you're trying to do within this business. So absolutely, I appreciate. I appreciate you bringing up uh, those kind of qualifying uh, points when you're evaluating partners. All right, so uh, so you've evaluated operators. You think that you know they're good. They're, they're good operators. Um, you know, I guess why why you have you guys focused on so many different industries rather than just you know sticking with one in particular. So so that was my last firm, um, Mad Capital, who I'm with okay. now. We exclusively do single tenant net leased industrial. And so it's a, it's a very narrow, um, you know, effectively scope that we pursue, um, get under contract, raise capital for, and ultimately take under ownership our, our industrial buildings that we acquire through what's called sale leaseback. Um, and so it's a little different than some other asset classes. Uh, ultimately, that the structure of it, instead of, you know, say buying, you know, I'll, I'll compare it to a multifamily transaction. You know, multifamily, you either, you know, see a, see an apartment complex listed, or you're able to find the owner, you know, maybe negotiate something off market. And really your discussion point is largely going to be over how to find a price that's acceptable for both parties mm-hmm. on a sale leaseback. It's slightly different where we are going and we are actually negotiating the price to buy real estate from t- typically a manufacturing company that owns their own real estate and occupies their own building. So they are effectively selling us the real estate and simultaneously we're negotiating a brand new, typically 20 year full triple net lease. So they are effectively going from an ownership position to a tenant position in this building that they're occupying. And the reason they're doing this, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. uh, So the reason they're doing this is effectively to pull out capital that's, you know, earning them some return in the form of a real estate investment, but pulling out that capital and reinvesting it into the operational aspect of their company. And that might look like paying down corporate debt. That might look like, you know, investing in new manufacturing lines, capital improvements that might be, you know, adding new headcount, you know, really typically when they're in expansionary mode, it's a alternative source of capital as opposed to taking on additional corporate debt by just pulling out the equity that's tied up in the real estate that they own. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. So, um, so let's kind of get get more, um, I guess, break down to the beginning on on what is a triple net lease, and you know what what does it take to kind of get into that for the listeners who may not know what that is. Yeah, great question. So, on the residential side, you typically have gross leases, and this is for you know single family for multifamily. So, ultimately, as a landlord investor you are going to be responsible. Your tenant's going to pay you rent, but you as the investor and the owner are typically going to pay for your property taxes. You're going to pay for the insurance on the property and you're going to pay for the utilities. And there's some sharing of utilities based on the the structure and multifamily, but as the responsibility for those expense items shift from the owner to the renter, we call those net aspects of the lease. So for example, a single net lease means the tenant along with rent is also responsible for the property taxes. Uh, A double net means property taxes and insurance and triple net means property taxes, insurance and utilities. And that utilities, that can really mean upkeep. That can mean, you know, replacing light bulbs that can mean paint uh, and taken to a, a, full extent of the definition. It can include everything from replacing a roof. It can be, you know, repouring the concrete outside, literally 100% of the upkeep that's tied to both that real estate and the land it sits on. You can effectively move all those expense items to the tenant side. And that's really the way single tenant net least industrial is structured. Okay. Interesting. So what I guess would be the advantage to, um, to having that lease with the uh, leaser, like the retailer, the industrial company that's coming in and leasing this building from you. Yeah. I mean, they, so why would they want that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of it's kind of industry standard and they're going to pay a lower price per square foot on a triple net lease than they would on a gross lease. Right. So gross lease, they're going to pay more per square foot, but they're not going to have any expenses. Conversely, on a triple net, they pay a lower price per square foot, but they are taking the the risk and uncertainty of all these operational expenses. So, and a lot of it is really product dependent. So, you know, to use an example, you almost never see net leases in the residential side, but in retail, it's common. Um, So especially in multi-tenant retail, you may see kind of a combination of gross leases and net leases. And as leases expire, you know, really the trend over the last two, three decades has been to replace gross leases with a new brand new net lease. And that, you know, kind of moving that expense category to a tenant um, really is kind of how the industry as a whole is shifting. So, you know, ultimately it's nice from an investor standpoint, because now you have effectively negotiated a set of cash flow that is almost untouchable. You know, you've effectively removed your expense line so rent comes in and that rent is your net operating income. And so ultimately, usually if you take a real estate loan, you pay the mortgage on that real estate and then everything left goes to the investor group. Um, so it's a very clean, simple, predictable set of cash flow streams that does not have the uncertainty of, you know, for example, what if the tax assessor comes and doubles your tax base? It's fine. It's all on the tenant, right? What if the what if your insurance provider comes and doubles your premium or there's a claim and there's a big deductible that needs to be paid? None of that matters to us as investors because all that's on the tenant. So, you know, all those 
user aspects really get moved over and allows us as an investment group to have, I mean, I, I could tell you with a high degree of certainty what cash flow will look like even three years from now, just because I, I know what the lease looks like. I know what the, the rent bumps that are pre-built in look like, and I know there's no expenses. So I think the biggest question I have, I have with regards to, you know, tripping at leases is how do you find the right people to be able to, sure. to um, you know, do these leases? Cause you know, a 20 year lease is a pretty, um, a pretty risky, I guess, lease from when you're trying to lease someone who's a small company, right. Who may not be around for that a long time, right. That may have some coronavirus type of pandemic hit that, sure. uh, you know, we'll shut them down for a while. So, so how do you go about evaluating those partners and saying, Hey, yes, this should be a 10 or 20 year lease. Like these are the terms that we should go with um, and kind of make that amenable to both sides. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll make the comparison to the retail space just cause it's a little more familiar to people. So you, you kind of have three credit categories. You have junk credit, uh, you have sub investment grade, and then you have investment grade. So you know, on, on the retail side, investment grade would probably be, you know, a publicly traded name brand company, something like, I don't know, you know, a Walmart or, you know, maybe a Target or, you know, some, some national chain publicly traded, they're going to have huge cash reserves. And if you have a lease with them, really, you have a high degree of certainty, they are going to fulfill their lease obligations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and typically they're, they're guaranteed on the, the corporate level. So really the, performance of that particular store is less important because the corporate parent entity has guaranteed that they will make sure that that lease gets paid. Um, The second level down is called sub-investment grade. And that's when you have strong companies, good financials, but usually they're not publicly traded. So they're typically privately held, often private equity backed. Uh, And on the industrial side, that might look like, you know, maybe a, uh, a parts manufacturer or an aerospace components manufacturer that produces it's, it's private equity backed. They might, you know, maybe have four or five locations and they are going to be still maybe selling to, you know, your Boeings, your Lockheeds. Um, but effectively they're not going to have an outside credit agency giving them a credit score like you do on, on a publicly traded company. Uh, and then the last kind of credit spectrum is junk credit. And that's going to be, you know, think of a mom and pop store, like, you know, a mom and pop restaurant or, you know, a small little nail salon. Those are going to be junk credit. Effectively, there is no credit in the corporation. Really, the only guarantee is just the net worth of the owners because they're small, you know, small chains or, or locally owned stuff that really doesn't have the substantiation on the entity level to back up that lease. You're really, you're depending on the finances and credit of the owners. So you know, as you grow, the entity as itself has enough really net worth and assets to guarantee that that lease as a corporation. And that's the space that we play in, in industrial. So to uh, transition over to what you asked, you know, how do you evaluate that risk, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, you, if you have all your eggs in one basket, quote unquote, with a single tenant, you know, you're, you're buying this real estate with a tenant in place, they are fully occupied, they're cash flowing. And obviously your gamble as an investor is saying, hey, do I think if I buy this real estate and plan to hold it for five years, do I think that this company with a high degree of certainty is gonna stay financially viable and able to pay their obligations and not go out of business, right? So we do that through an internal credit advisory team. So we, we have three guys on staff, 
all they do is run company credit. So each deal we have, and it's kind of a hybrid almost of like a private equity investment and a real estate investment. Cause you have that, that really that, that corporate financial picture that a PE group would look for combined with the real estate fundamentals. And so it's kind of a neat, you know, hybrid investment type, but, you know, we look at everything from, you know, balance sheets to financial summaries, you know, income and expenses, EBITDAs, EBITDA margins, but then we go further and we look at, hey, what kind of debt load do these people have? Uh, what, what's their customer breakdown look like? Uh, and then we look at for a sale leaseback, if they're selling us the real estate, they're getting a huge injection of cash, right? Now they, they might sell us that real estate for 10 million bucks and turn around and, and lease it back. So what are they going to do with that 10 million bucks? So we, we interview their CFOs, find out what, it, you know, are you, are you paying off the owner who's going to buy himself a yacht, you know, right off into the sunset, or is this being reinvested into the company? So these are all really important elements to, you know, be able to look at, to know, but, you know, once, once you get them kind of panned out and, you know, a lot of these companies are consistently profitable, have, you know, steady year over year growth. And now you can say, hey, this is a well-funded company, has good cash reserves. They've been around 30, 40, 50 years. They've seen a lot of recessions. They've shown they have the you know, fortitude to kind of withstand highs and lows. They can control their costs. Now, suddenly, this is a pretty safe investment. And if you understand that risk and can evaluate it and come out on the other side to go, there's a high chance this company really, I don't even need them to grow. I just need them to effectively stay in business to be able to pay their rent. Even flatline growth is fine. And, uh, you know, that scenario, you know, is a win for us as an investment group. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's fantastic what you guys have, have been able to, how you guys go about valuing these companies um, on a very, you know, detailed, detailed level, like doing interviews and all of that. So, um, so are you mainly, I guess so my next question then is, is we should probably start from the beginning. It's, it's what is industrial? Like, how do you, how do you define that um, <laughs> sure. you know, for someone who may not know the, the term itself? Yeah. Uh, there's a couple different types, like most asset classes we play our, our company, Mag Capital plays in the manufacturing slash distribution side. And that's going to be, you know, largely four walls and a roof. The space itself is not fancy, not super expensive. Ultimately, you are providing a space that's protected from the elements, um, that's dependable and allows a company space for them to add value by producing or storing and shipping and selling whatever it is that they make. And that, that is effectively the value play of industrial real estate. Um, other types, you have uh, flex industrial. Flex, imagine long buildings in an industrial business park, um, typically subdivided. And th that is going to be a little more similar to multi-tenant retail, you know, like a strip mall, in that you'll have a number of typically smaller size and credit tenants, you know, usually maybe 2,000 square feet each. They're going to be everything from you know, metal fabricators to, you know, a tire shop to, you know, a storage yard for a lawn, a lawn care service, you know, whatever it is they need space for um, typically has high, high ceilings, sometimes a truck bay where they can load and unload trucks as needed beverage distribution, you know, outposts, wherever that might be, that's flex industrial. And those are going to require a lot more leasing, a lot more property management uh, compared to, you know, your larger manufacturing side. And then the last kind of industrial is called specialized. Specialized is going to be much more higher price per square foot, 
um, typically associated with very specific uses. Um, so to use an example, you know, biotech, for instance, or refineries, people that are using compressed gas coming in and need, you know, insulation on their, their temperature controlled. And sometimes, you know, even with Amazon, you could say their warehouses fall under specialized because they're integrated with lasers and all this really advanced technology to allow their, their system to work in the way it does. Um, but really it's, it's specialized for their particular use. Um, and that's going to really limit the amount of users that can use that space and warrant a higher price per square foot as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I, I never, I never really realized that. I mean, I've heard, I've heard of industrial, but mainly it was like, Oh, you own this space that people store stuff in. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's mainly like what I've, I've imagined with industrial. So, um, you know, on the multifamily side, how we typically find uh, properties um, is through brokers, right? Commercial real estate brokers who, you know, are in touch with the seller and they kind of bring it to market, right? Or you can go off market and, and directly contact the seller that way. How do you go about doing that in industrial? Like how, how would you know as, as your company that, you know, Walgreens, for example, wants to sell their building and they're willing to lease back or, you know, this smaller company in the strip mall, uh, you know, the strip mall owner is wanting to sell and, you know, and, and, uh, and a walk away, walk away from, you know, with, with a whole bunch of money. How do you know, how do you go about knowing if deals are available and, and, and finding these types of deals? So on the stabilized space, and when I say stabilized, I mean, occupied industrial real estate where the tenant occupying it is separate from the owner. Um, so those are going to be bought and sold through a broker network, very similar to multifamily mm-hmm. um, in the sale leaseback space where you have owner occupants, those tend to be go through a, a much more specialized subset of commercial brokers or sometimes through private equity relationships. And, and the latter PE relationships, a lot of times these companies, one of the drivers behind that sale leaseback is the company is selling. Typically, the owner is finding their exit by selling the company to a private equity group who buys them as a portfolio company and then executes that sale leaseback to pull the equity out of the real estate and reinvest it into the operational side of the company they just bought. So, you know, they really, it's an ROI comparison, right? So if you're a private equity group, you go, Hey, can I get better returns keeping my money tied up in real estate? Basically I'm a real estate investor, or do I think I can get better returns investing this money into growing the the business? And, you know, really their, their specialty is growing the business. They do that calculation. They say, I, we think we can get a better ROI on the business side. So that's what drives that sale leaseback space. But um, so sometimes if we buy a sale leaseback property from a private equity backed company, when that private equity group buys their next portfolio company, often it comes with the real estate again, they'll just call us direct. You know, they know we, we performed on the last one and it's easy. They don't have to go through the whole listing process. Often we can close quickly. And that way their money's not tied up in that real estate for a long time. They can execute the transaction quickly, put that money to work in their new portfolio company and everyone wins in that scenario. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Uh, I think that's amazing, you know, and, and it sounds like it's a pretty high barrier to entry to, to get into to this space. It, you it certainly you know the right people. Yeah, well, and one other piece that's a huge barrier to entry is the debt side. So, you know, in multifamily, most multifamily investors are able to get really 
you know, debt from agency loans, meaning Freddie, or excuse me, Freddie and Fannie loans that come in, you know, the kind of government backed, you end up having um, usually non-recourse. So you as a investor operator are getting all this debt and that debt is securitized by your new multifamily investment, but you don't have any personal liability. In the commercial and industrial world, it's a little different. Typically, most of your competitive loans are going to be securitized by the real estate, but also require personal guarantees. So you have to have the net worth as a sponsor effectively to qualify for sometimes, you know, eight, nine, $10 million of debt on each one of these properties. So you kind of have to have a highly liquid, high net worth group as the core sponsor piece to even hop into this, this industry, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's, uh, makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, it's a, it's a whole different, a whole different ball game you're dealing with compared to, to compared to multifamily. Um, so I guess the last question before we get into the snapshot round is if someone was interested in trying to get into triple net lease, right? This, right. Um, it's just getting started. Um, you know, may not have all these connections, um, you know, moving forward. How would you think what the best steps for them to kind of get into this industry would be? Yeah, I, I think really coming in as a passive investor through syndication is absolutely the best way to get into this space. Cause you're able to go in without having to, or you're effectively able to piggyback on all those high barriers to entry with a group that has, you know, come in at a much lower price point, similar to, you know, investing passively in say multifamily. Uh, But ultimately you're able to diversify a little bit in a field of real estate that does not have direct correlation with, you know, a lot of the more common ones like retail or multifamily. So, I mean, just to use an example over COVID, multifamily and retail really got hit pretty hard because of a lot of the rental moratorium stuff and, you know, retail, as you know, but industrial, very low correlation industrial ended up performing extremely well as an asset class. You know, they're all deemed essential. Almost all the industries stayed in business and they really outshined some of those other asset classes in a way that makes sense for adding some of it into your portfolio as a passive investor. Um, you know, and then to answer your, your other question, how would you get involved? Really find, find a, you know, ask around, find a sponsor who's investing in that space. Uh, if you are interested in, in learning more with mag capital, who is in that space, um, who I'm with, uh, you can happy to reach out. I can chat with you more on the, on the podcast or talk about joining our investor group. Um, you can just shoot me an email at neil and eil at magcp.com. Awesome, perfect. And and we'll include your your contact information there at the end as well. Um, all right. Uh, I think this has been fascinating and I want to get into the snapshot round. I feel like we could probably keep talking about this for another <laughs> two hours. Um, sure. but uh, you ready to to jump in here? Let's do it. All ahead blank cavitate, snapshot, tube tube. All right. Neil, first question for you. What is your number one failure in real estate? Number one failure, I would say getting right to the finish line on two deals in a row that we had to effectively walk away from. Um, This was shortly after COVID, um, you know, as an investment group, but myself included, we had two um, really two, two industrial deals without getting into specifics, both of the tenant companies we're heavily reliant into selling into the retail space and everything just got ugly. Uh, you know, their whole, you know, customer, 
um, customer pipelines really dried up and the lenders suddenly said, nope, you know, we, we know we agreed on giving you debt terms, but you know, right now we're just not lending to anything. And we had the decision of whether do we want to push forward with suboptimal terms and take on a ton more risk or just bite the bullet. And we ended up kind of biting the bullet on almost a quarter million dollars in pursuit costs, <laughs> which was really hard to do. But, you know, at the end of the day, we said, you know, the terms have shifted. This deal has more risk than it did when we started pursuing this. And, you know, to take this to our investor group really is not, not the right thing to do. And so, you know, it hurt financially, but, you know, luckily the, the space really turned around quickly in the, on the industrial side. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's almost a, a win for you. I mean, it, you're kind of sticking to your guns and your your core tenants on, on evaluating deals. And sometimes it just doesn't pan out when you when you have a, a global <laughs> pandemic hit. So, yep, <laughs> uh, it's, it's really interesting. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Um, so as a veteran investor, what advice do you have for other military investors to be successful? Oh, start early, um, you know, and start at any capacity, because I, I feel like there's this automatic mental barrier of like, oh, I, I just, I need to keep learning. Maybe it's, it's because of the fact that in the military, you just, you get some of the world-class training on whatever it is you're doing, right? I mean, the military trains people very, very well. And you typically never are asked to do something until you've had this huge pipeline of, you know, basic course, intermediate, advanced, whatever it might be on whatever the military is asking you to do for your, your core field there. In the, in the real estate world, there is none of that, right? So just start educating yourself, but at the same time, start, if, if your goal is to be an investor, start investing at some small level. And once you go through the process of investing, I feel like that really provides a much greater amount of experience than all the books you can read in the world. You know, just kind of go through it. You might make some mistakes, you know, start off on a small enough level where, you know, it's not going to kill you if, if one of these goes sideways, but you know, as you go through it, just the process, I think, is is indispensable in terms of growing your confidence and awareness as an investor or, you know, eventually even a as a, a general partner putting together investments. And you just you have to just make the leap, start doing it instead of just educating yourself and, and going from a, a student to an active participant, I think, is is the number one thing I would recommend for someone who's you know currently considering that space. Love it. Perfect. All right. What inspired you to serve your country? I, I wish it was much more patriotic, but I was you know, kind of a shy 16, 17 year old and being a, being a pilot sounded like a great way to meet girls and <laughs> ultimately looked at the, the commercial side kind of expensive. So that's what, uh, what actually drove me to the, to the military. But, you know, once I was in, you know, I joined right before 9-11. So, you know, a year and a half into the academy, 9-11 hit suddenly everything was very different than the set of conditions when I joined. And I think that was, you know, right around the time when I was, you know, making the commitment to stay in the academy. And, you know, I really kind of, I, I think watching, watching the Twin Towers fall and really seeing, hey, this is, this is it, you know, and, and when I get commissioned here in two short years, like this is the world I'm going into. And seeing it in a very visual fashion, to me, was what made it real and really kind of you know, put that, that core motivation in. So yeah, I, I'm very happy. I went through the experience and wouldn't trade it for anything. Awesome. Okay. And the last question for you, Neil, what is your dream? My, I'm living it. <laughs> my, my dream. I mean, honestly, work-life balance, 
doing, doing something I enjoy. I, I have a, a nine-year-old, a beautiful wife. I'm, I'm able to spend time with them and, and do a job that I love, kind of set my own hours, you know, still get to fly recreationally and travel a lot. I mean, I think for me, just being in charge of my, my day-to-day is just brings me a, a massive amount of happiness and not having to <laughs> report for PT at 6am. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally get that. Totally understand. Yeah. And this sounds amazing. Um, Neil, I really enjoyed, you know, you coming on here and sharing your, your extensive amount of wisdom in this particular field and, you know, with triple net leases with industrial um, and kind of shedding light on, on um, an alternative source of, uh, of real estate that a lot of people may not be may not be familiar with my, myself included. So I appreciate you sharing, you're sharing your knowledge there. And, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who are interested, but if anyone wants to reach out to you, where, where else can they uh, find more information about you or learn more? Yeah. I check out our website. We got some general info on there. It's um, magcp.com for mag capital partners, uh, or just shoot me a note. Love to hear your, your thoughts on the show questions, or if you are interested in learning more about our investment group, uh, again, that's Neil N E I L at magcp.com. Awesome. And we will include that in the show notes as well for uh, anyone who wants to know. But uh, Neil, again, thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time and uh, please stay safe back in the States. Will do. Thanks so much for having me, Anthony. Thanks for listening. If you are a military investor and found this episode of the Lessons in Real Estate show packed with great information, tell your friends and leave a five-star rating on your listening platform. Every comment is read and appreciated. Don't forget to check out our weekly episodes of PCI Teaches, brought to you by Pinto Capital Investments. Learn about basic and advanced topics in real estate investing. Catch updates on Anthony's journey through learn and teach segments. And listen to the tales of other military investors and real estate professionals every week. We'll catch you next time on the Lessons in Real Estate show.